This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. If Ukraine falls to Russia, Europe is over. That's Kurt Volker, former U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine negotiations. Today, 30 years after the Soviet Union fell, Vladimir Putin's trying to reconstruct it. And if he successfully takes over Ukraine, despite a firm warning from U.S. President Joe Biden, Volker says that could change everything for the rest of Europe. And what that means to me is not that the EU disappears or that West Europe loses its freedom, but this idea that Europe is a place where all of its people can live in freedom and democracy and prosperous market economies and have security in their own territory, that idea is lost. And I think that would be a tragedy. And if Ukraine loses its freedom, it's just a matter of time before somebody else loses their freedom. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. A day after the world watched intently for signs that President Joe Biden had convinced Russian President Vladimir Putin to drop plans to invade Ukraine, there are none. Only a stark reminder of why almost 100,000 troops are still camped on Ukraine's border. On December 8, 1991, the leaders of three Soviet republics, Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus, declared the Soviet Union was done. Subsequently, all 15 of its republics were set free. But exactly 30 years later, today, a different Soviet-inspired regime, led by Russian President Vladimir Putin, appears to be well along the path of trying to take Ukraine back, a move that will undoubtedly change the nature of freedom in Europe. If Ukraine falls to Russia, Europe is over. Those are the words of Kurt Volker, former U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine negotiations. He joins us on Target USA to explain what he means. Ambassador Volker, if Ukraine falls to Russia, complete that sentence for us. Yeah. If Ukraine falls to Russia, Europe is over. And what that means to me is not that the EU disappears or that West Europe loses its freedom, but this idea that Europe is a place where all of its people can live in freedom and democracy and prosperous market economies and have security in their own territory, that idea is lost. And I think that would be a tragedy. And if Ukraine loses its freedom, it's just a matter of time before somebody else loses their freedom. And who's next in line? Who are the others that are at risk? 
the one that I worry about the most right now is Moldova. Uh, I think Moldova, it's already half occupied by Russian forces, but the half that's not is functioning as a democracy and is bordering Romania and um, can be a normal country. But I worry that Russia will start putting pressure to topple the government in Moldova next. Another one uh, that is on the table, if you will, is Georgia, where Russia already has taken two pieces of Georgian territory, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, and occupies those, has recognized them as independent states, which which they're clearly not. there, I think the Georgians have a little bit more internal strength and self-identity to push back on Russia, but that's also one at risk. We've seen Russia de facto take control of Belarus already. And the one that would be very worrying to us here in Washington or to Europe would be the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, because they are now fully members of NATO and the EU, but they are nestled right up against Russia and they had been occupied uh, by the Soviet Union anything there would actually require an immediate uh, U.S. military response. So why? why? Why does Russia want Ukraine? I think that uh, there's a couple of issues here. Putin has written a couple of pseudo-historical essays, or he wrote one in Medvedev gave a long interview. Uh, they essentially deny that Ukraine is a separate country and doesn't have a right to its own sovereignty, that Ukrainians and Russians and Belarusians are all part of the same people and that Moscow should be leading all of them. So that's one aspect there. Second is uh, Putin has created or recreated, if you will, an authoritarian system in Russia. So it's it's not a democracy. It's not an open uh, country. It is one where one person is is at the top and has all the levers of power through his KGB cronies. Um, this would be the military, the intelligence services, special forces, media, um, mercenary forces, Wagner Group, um, state-owned industries, gas, oil, for example. So he has amassed all of the power in the country and denies people a lot of opportunity and freedom. In order to justify that and to remain in power, he sells people a narrative that he is a great leader defending Russian greatness. One of the things that they've done in uh, eastern Ukraine, they've also done in these breakaway parts of Georgia, they do it elsewhere, is give people Russian passports, people who live in other countries, and then justify Russia's intervention on behalf of those people as protecting Russian citizens. Uh, So he creates this narrative of standing up for Russian greatness in some way as a way to um, convince people that he should remain in power. That is pretty remarkable. That is very much akin to what the government of Russia has done and Belarus in going to other countries and essentially transporting people from other countries into their country or allowing them to come into their country and then using them as weapons against the country they're from or against a neighboring country. I mean, exactly. This is this is something that is breathtaking to actually use refugees as a weapon. Uh, to uh, court people from Syria or from Libya or else Afghanistan into your country and then push them out across the border into Poland or Lithuania uh, to then 
cause the EU to either take a massive flow of refugees or to push back and suffer the humanitarian consequences of not allowing them in. It's brazen and it's unbelievable that uh, Belarus would do that. And we have to remember, too, Belarus would not do this if Putin did not support them doing it. Yeah. That's where the idea came from. Remember Kirkenes, right? Yes. The bicycles. I mean, why would 5,000 kids' bicycles show up on the border of Kirkenes, which is a neighboring country, in a neighboring country uh, to to Russia? Uh, Finland, correct? Norway. Um, Yeah. And um, there are not that many children. Right. (laughs) There. (laughs) Right. It is. um, It's brazen. That's all it is. Yeah. So... um, for a little historical perspective on Ukraine, why is Ukraine so important in that region? This is a good question, uh, because I think a lot of people don't really think about this. Ukraine uh, is the cradle of uh, Slavic civilization, you know, the early 800s, was Kievan Rus that uh, built the country in, of Ukraine. And they then later on founded Moscow. So if... Um, Ukraine becomes a successful model of a modern country that's democratic, prosperous, rule of law, etc. It really exposes Russia as a decrepit, corrupt, authoritarian state. So the stakes for Putin of not exposing that the same way are pretty high. He doesn't want Ukraine to be successful. Another aspect, Ukraine is the largest country geographically all within Europe. It has a population of about 40 million people. It has immense natural resources, both for agriculture, but also mining, um, energy resources. Uh, It should be a very prosperous country and a a strength uh, for Europe. Uh, So it's either a value add for humanity, for people, for economy, for security in Europe, or it is a risk. It's a threat in the sense that weakness uh, there and Russian aggression there can can spill over into other places. You could have refugees from there. And therefore, how this turns out is critically important for Europe. You know, I was reading a piece that you wrote about this uh, situation, and you, you, you said, you know, uh, in your piece that uh, the alliance must not blink or compromise its values in the face of Kremlin menace toward its friends and I need to ask this particular question. Have have the Allies not blinked a little bit since, you know, the downing of that Ukrainian plane? Yeah, uh, there were a couple of instances. Um, there was the downing of the airliner. Uh, it was a Malaysian airliner that uh, Russian forces brought down yes. uh, over Ukraine and uh, killed a couple hundred civilians. I mean, it was a terrible tragedy. Uh, another was Russia's incredibly brazen military operation to seize Crimea and then in swift movements annex or claim to annex the territory and make it part of Russia. Uh, that's that's just stunning. We haven't seen this since, since World War II times. And then launching another war in eastern Ukraine right after that. All, during all of that time, I think we were in disbelief and I think we were kind of reluctant to respond for fear of escalating into a a full-blown war with Russia. But now I think we've all kind of seen what happens when you don't respond, uh, that he keeps going and he raises the stakes even more. Uh, So it 
it is it is true that I think the West underreacted, blinked, yes. if you will, back then. Uh, I wouldn't say that we've done so yet today, but the jury's out because we are we are at the pinnacle of this crisis now. So, probably. After the president has spoken to Vladimir Putin, there's a strong possibility he might do what he did when the the two spoke earlier this year, which is to ignore what the president says uh, and continue with the same kind of um, uh, process that he's 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 engaged in. And, you know, I've spoken to a couple of intelligence folks um, in the last couple of weeks about why that is. and, and, And one of the key themes that emerged is because of Mr. Biden's own problems here in the U.S., the division in the nation here, his inability to galvanize support in Congress. But if Putin does ignore the U.S., what do you think is the the primary reason behind that? Uh, I think he may actually correctly assess that the U.S. will not put its own forces into play in order to save Ukraine. I think a lot of Americans would say, you know, we should not be fighting Russia over Ukraine. And I don't think the uh, the people of the country and I don't think the administration would do that, which means that Putin feels he has the upper hand because he is willing to put military force into play. Uh, President Biden, no doubt, will be warning him about devastating sanctions, uh, including to the financial system of Russia, if they proceed down that path. But I think uh, President Putin probably feels he can weather that. He doubts the administration's resolve. He doubts the administration's ability to get Europe to go along with that. Or if even if all that transpires, it'll be temporary and he can weather that, but he can still then claim to have been a great Russian leader. In terms of what happens after the phone call, I think that's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, obviously, one scenario is Putin says, if you don't give me the commitments that I want, that Ukraine will never be a member of NATO, that there will be no U.S. or other military bases there, that Russia has a veto over the government of Ukraine, then I'm going to do I'm going to do what I want to do. Uh, and I don't think Biden can give him those things. Right. Uh, I don't think Biden can sell out the Ukrainian people. Uh, so that means we'll have a, a, a unresolved situation after this phone call. And then what does Putin do? Uh, does he actually launch an invasion? Does he just keep the same level of tension high for much longer? Maybe he decides to do what he did with Georgia and recognize these two regions of Ukraine that he's trying to break away as independent states. Uh, he, he just had the head of one of those in Moscow the other day and made him a member of Putin's United Russia Party. And um, they promised to provide passports to all of the or sit, give citizenship to all the people that live in that area of Ukraine, give them Russian citizenship. So he has a lot of things in his playbook that he could do. What you said at the very beginning of this thing, though, is that if Putin moves ahead with this and Ukraine becomes essentially another pawn, another part, he takes successfully takes over um, Ukraine, uh, invades Ukraine, I should say. Um, yeah. You know, Europe does, it's done, you know, as, as we know it. And we know that yeah. the U.S. fought for Europe twice, as you mentioned. Um, but the most recent was uh, in Europe in World War II. Uh, and that was all about saving Europe. And yes. this particular situation, though, you know, I, I don't really see a way not to 
to engage Russia in some form militarily here. I mean, if it's if it's through NATO, whatever, whatever form, but there has to be, uh, you know, some kind of some part, some compartment of this creative threat to Russia, to, to Putin, to stop him. It's got to involve that. Is yeah. there is, is that is that overthinking, overreaching? No, I think you you raise a, a very difficult and very valid point. Uh, because we don't want to be in that position, but uh, we are faced with the reality that we are faced with. Uh, I think what I would expect to see happen is the U.S. increasing its deployments and basing in NATO countries where we are already obliged to defend them. That would include the Baltic states, uh, it would include Romania, uh, it would include um, Germany, Poland, um, Czechoslovakia, or Czechs and Slovaks, perhaps. So um, you could see further deployments there. And that would be necessary because we would probably also be increasing our assistance to Ukraine to help them defend themselves. That would be training, there would be more military equipment, might be some advisors, uh, technical assistance. If we do that to help Ukraine defend itself, we also want to be sure that we have put in place a capable means defending our allies so Putin doesn't pivot and attack somewhere new. Uh, so those sorts of the use of the military, I think, are necessary and probably the next steps if, if uh, Putin keeps this up. You have essentially nailed what I was trying to get at and move on to as my next question is what would it take to stop such an invasion? What collective, creative set of tools slash weapons would it take, uh, including everything? Yeah. Um, first off, uh, absolute clarity and resolve that Putin should be under no illusions that there will not be a very decisive response. Um, I, I know he perceives weakness here. I know he perceives weakness in Europe. Obviously, Chancellor Merkel stepping down. They have a new untested chancellor there. France is going into elections and so forth. Um, but he needs to see that there is resolve. Uh, second thing is we do need to step up our security assistance to Ukraine. And there are particular areas where they need a lot of help. They need counter electronic warfare, counter drone technology, air defense capabilities, uh, maritime defense capabilities, uh, as well as some uh, basic uh, equipment in ground warfare. We've given them anti-tank missiles, but they could certainly use more of those too. So now, um, why should the U.S. care about this? Why should Americans care about this? And, and what, what are the reasons the average American should say, oh, that's so far away? Um, I mean, I mean, w what are the reasons that Americans should not say that's so far away? It doesn't really impact us. Why should Americans care about this? You know, John McCain uh, very famously said that uh, our values are our interests and our interests are our values. And here, if we see people who aspire to have their freedom, they're willing to fight for it, and they're right in the heart of Europe. Uh, if we turn our back on them and their freedom is taken away, their country is attacked, their people are killed, their, their people are driven into refugee status, um, that is a disaster, not only for those people, but it's a disaster for the system of values that we've built up in the world and that we depend upon as a country. 
we want to live in a better world. We want to live in a world where people live in freedom and democracy and rule of law and so forth. And as that gets eaten away by authoritarians, that shrinks our world. Eventually, we find it intolerable. And that's why we went and fought in Europe in World War I and World War II, uh, because we couldn't bear to see uh, Germany take over Britain and France, uh, or we couldn't bear to see you know, Hitler and Stalin uh, divide up Europe at that time. Uh, similarly, this, you know, people say that uh, the, the appetite gets bigger with the eating. If Putin is successful in taking this piece of Ukraine or more of Ukraine or overturning the government of Ukraine, I think the risks grow that he will want to do more to rebuild the Soviet Union. And uh, I think that will be very dangerous for all of us. And you do believe he's trying to reconstitute, at least in some way, the Soviet empire? In some way. Uh, he said very famously that the collapse of the Soviet Union, the 30th anniversary of which is Wednesday, by the way, the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. Well, for people who starved under Stalin or were mass murdered under Stalin or were killed by Soviet forces or you know, in the East uh, during World War II or suffered under a brutal uh, totalitarian regime for decades, I don't think those people viewed the collapse of the Soviet Union as such a, such a bad thing. But Putin said it was the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. And he has tried to fashion himself as a Russian ruler rather than a Soviet ruler, but wanting to reestablish a sense of empire and greatness. Uh, as I said, he's already de facto taking control of, of security of Belarus. He has taken Crimea. He has taken pieces of Georgia. He is occupying uh, parts of eastern Ukraine. So he already can claim to be one of the builders of Russia, of a Russian empire. He's not losing lands. He's taking lands. And I think that is something he wants history to record, that he helped build a Russian empire. I want to step away from this uh, interviewer, interviewee, uh, moment and and talk with you as a person who has um, myself been to Eastern Europe, seen mm -hmm. and spoken with people from all of the countries you're talking about, and someone who has for a long time been covering Russia's activity from assassinations, you know, over the years to going back to unexplained deaths in the United States like that of Mikhail Lesson here at the DuPont Circle Hotel to the collapsing suddenly of Russian diplomats. I mean, just the things that they've done in the United States that haven't been explained, much of which um, when you go overseas and look at what's taking place over there and hear from those folks over there, there's much a much more uh, urgent, a tone coming from them than folks here in the U.S. who've experienced these things, but don't seem to be able to put them into context. Don't be able, don't seem able to be able to understand the the importance of it. And what I'm getting at here, uh, Ambassador, is there are some of us in the United States who see something very sinister unfolding here, but it's really hard to get Americans to listen to what we're yes. saying. What is the yes. key to doing that? Uh, honestly, I think the key is our own leadership. 
you know, President Bush, after 9-11, you know, climbed up on top of that rubble and got out the bullhorn, and he made clear that terrorism like that, that took down the World Trade Center, is a uh, global threat. Uh, it can happen again. They're after us, and we will fight. We will go after that. And he gave clear leadership to the country at a critical time. You can disagree about other things that happened after that, you know, about Afghanistan and Iraq and so forth. But uh, President Bush gave clear leadership to the direction of the country. We don't hear our leaders in this country highlighting the issue of importance and national security and that this is a threat to us and uh, the way of life that we believe in and to our friends and our allies. We don't hear that as much now. So the American people uh, are inclined to then just continue to go on with business as normal. That's a great thing about this country. We're big, we're prosperous, we're resilient. So, you know, we, we have the ability to weather a lot and to not feel that we're affected by everything in the world. But sometimes we have to snap out of that and say, you know what, the world needs us. And if we don't do something, the world's coming to us. You're exactly right about that. The thing that really got my attention on this was some years ago, right after or right right around the time of the 2016 election, um, I spoke with a variety of people as I was investigating some sources and information that came to me before the election suggesting that there was this massive bot net working against the U.S. and there was this effort using troll houses overseas to pump disinformation into the U.S. Uh, and this was something that started years before the election yeah. to set the to set the to, to build the infrastructure to do what it was that. Uh, the architects of this this disinformation program in Russia wanted to do ahead of that particular election. This has only gotten worse as time has passed, as we discovered uh, pieces of their, I guess, their operation, like a Maria Butina. You know, mm -hmm. there are mm -hmm. other people um, who <laughs> are American politicians who are suspected of being taking dirty money, um, mm -hmm. dark money from you know, some of the, the oligarchs connected to the United States. And there are people in this country, politicians, elected representatives, when you mention Russia to you, they say, what what's the problem? And <laughs> this is the thing that seems to me in many ways problematic in getting America to wake up out of this stupor. Yeah. What's the, yeah. Do you have a suggestion for how to do that? <laughs> well, uh, clearly, if it were easy, it would already have been done. Uh, I don't know that there's any magic formula, but I do think that you know, exposing it as you're doing, talking about it as you're doing, getting it into the media, um, engaging political leaders to have them explain this is what's happening. But um, one of the things, you know, you, you made a good point about the bots and we knew it was happening and it has gotten worse. But I don't think we have established a way of deterring it or stopping it. Uh, we need to think about that. We need to put our put our put ourselves in a more um, a, a offensive position rather than a responsive position. We need to say, what can we do that Russia will not want us to do that would cause them to then want to stop? Uh, we haven't got anything like that right now. I don't see us deterring those kinds of cyber attacks or interference in our elections or disinformation and so forth. Well, a um, couple more things. I think 
um, back to the traditional interviewer, interviewee <laughs> process here and taking my own self out of this podcast, just listening to what you have to say. Um, inside, inside of Russia, is there a movement there strong enough? I mean, I know Alexei Navalny is in prison now, and it, who knows when, if he'll ever get out. Is there a movement still alive there that can change this calculus? There is, although uh, that's not quite the way I would phrase it. I'd say there is substantial discontent with Putin. There's also a lot of resignation of feeling that we can't do anything about it. But you have people who are 30 years old who can't remember a time when there was anybody other than Putin as their president. Uh, that's not natural. And people get fed up with, with just things being the same and, and not getting better. Uh, so when Navalny was free, uh, he would travel the country and they would have rallies of tens of thousands of people wherever he would go. So there's clearly a lot of people willing to stand up and be led to create something else if there's a means to do it. Putin has created an absolutist authoritarian system where people don't feel there's an opportunity now. But nothing ever lasts forever. And whether it's his own person, you know, as, as how long does he remain as president? Does his health support that and so forth? Uh, if it's no longer him, but they try to pass the mantle to, to someone else to keep the system together, does that person have the same clout and authority and skill that Putin does? Uh, eventually, Russia is going to change. Uh, I was at a conference uh, last week where someone made the point that, you know, Russia collapsed as a as a state or, you know, one was the Soviet Union, one was the, the empire uh, twice in the course of a century. Um, it has an inability to adapt uh, over time. And so at a certain certain point, the system freezes up and collapses. And I think Russia unless they learn how to live with their neighbors and to open up the society and to take care of their own people uh, in a serious, modern way, I think they're going to be headed in that direction again. Yep. And I will end with this, um, something else that you wrote that I was thinking about as well. Um, in this particular situation, uh, an invasion of Ukraine would not be like it was in 2015. U Ukraine is much better prepared militarily, yes. there yes. would probably be a lot of dead Russians there Yes, this time if they invaded Ukraine. And I'm thinking, as you were writing, that might actually help Putin think a couple, couple times before engaging in this invasion, that's, correct? That's the hope. That's the hope. When he took Crimea and when he launched the war in eastern Ukraine, he did it with what people call hybrid warfare. Yeah. So not an overt, you know, uniforms on, badges on, rolling in with tanks uh, to take over territory. He did it by putting in little green men, no, no badges on their uniforms, uh, special forces and intelligence people supporting what appeared to be local separatists, doing it all in a very stealth way. And he's for seven years denied that Russia had anything to do with uh, attacking and taking these territories in Ukraine, uh, even though it was a Russian-led operation. Today, he could not do that. Uh, he, he would have to do this in an overt way with Russian forces. And many of them, as you said, w would be uh, 
wounded or killed, some captured, it would be a real conflict. Uh, Ukraine doesn't have the ability to defeat Russia. So uh, you, you just have to assume that Russia will prevail. But it would be a much bloodier exercise for Russia this time and presumably not very popular in Russia either, that people will be asking, why are my sons and daughters fighting in Ukraine? Why are we killing Ukrainians? They're our brothers. It doesn't quite make sense. Yeah. Anything you want to add that I haven't asked you about that you think is important? Well, one thing I think is important for American leaders and foreign policy and military leader strategists to, to internalize is that nothing's ever over. And Putin, he doesn't have end states in mind. It's not like he has an exit strategy, an end goal, you know, that once he takes this, he's done. What Putin does is he creates positions of strength and then acts opportunistically over time to disrupt things, to create weakness or instability around him, to create opportunities to exercise power and influence. So we are in the midst of a pretty uh, tense moment right now with Russia. It could even lead to a conflict. But even if this is resolved and you know the air comes out of the balloon a little bit and uh, there isn't a new uh, attack on Ukraine, it doesn't mean that it's over that we're going to have to stay focused on this for a long time. Ambassador Kurt Volker, thank you so much. This is very, very good insight, but no, I I kind of figured we would get that from you anyway, talking to you, (laughs) looking at your deep and great experience over the years, uh, being a distinguished fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis and uh, a leading expert, of course, in national and foreign policy, but of course, most importantly, serving as U.S. ambassador to NATO and a special representative for Ukraine negotiations. So, you know, you've got a very deep well from which to bring this wisdom and knowledge, and we thank you for it. Thank you so much, JJ, and thank you for what you do as well. I I really do admire the way you uh, take some of these complex issues and put them out in very clear, simple language so Americans can understand. Well, I leave the complex language to you, although I will say this, your <laughs> complex language is still very clear and blunt. <laughs> My simplicity is just lack of uh, deep understanding as, no, as is no, yours. It's a, it's a skill. It's a skill to simplify. <laughs> well, thank you very much again. All right. Take care. Thank you, Jay. Ambassador Kurt Volker. He's a former U.S. ambassador to NATO. Coming up on our next episode, I know we said the week before that on this episode we'd be talking about the supply chain but due to circumstances outside of our control mainly a menacing russian president on the border of ukraine talking about invading that country with as many as 175,000 troops we thought it prudent to pivot to cover that so next week we'll be back to the supply chain if you have any questions or comments about target usa send me an email you can reach me at jgreen at WTOP.com. The letter J, the color green, one word. J Green at WTOP.com. Also, follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. And please subscribe to our podcast. If you want more national security news, sign up for Inside the Skiff. It drops every Thursday. You can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm JJ Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey guys, Jay Cutler. Started a new podcast called Uncut with Jay Cutler. 
Most of you know me from the NFL, some of you have seen me on Instagram, and some of you know me from the reality TV world. Each week I'm taking you along with me as we discuss football, trending topics, and whatever's going on in my life each week. I'm bringing along people that are special in my life, former teammates, friends, and some new people that I like and respect. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Podcasting? I think I'm doing this right. Can't wait to get started with you. Go subscribe now. Uncut with Jay Cutler, Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.